0: Uh, Bridger and uh, Karis for that. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If this is your first time as a parent having a child slipping out to our, our children's church service, uh, just remember to pick them up following the service just out here in the hallway, and, uh, and otherwise, um, we'll just leave them here, I guess. Uh, so make sure you... No, that's a joke. Please make sure you pick up your kids uh, right after... Uh, the service in the hallway. John chapter 1 is uh, where we're going to be this morning. So thankful for the opportunity to look through the gospel of John and to be able to see the incredible doctrine that John outlines for us in the prologue, verses 1 through 18. And now as we begin the historical account that John's going to give us for his specific purpose... We'll begin in verse 19, and our text will go down through verse 34. Every time you see the word John mentioned in these passages, it's not referring to the apostle John who's written this gospel, but it is referring to the the character we know, or the, the man we know as John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, the one who was known for his role in preparing the way for Christ by offering a baptism for repentance of sins. And so, let's look, begin reading in verse 19, and we we'll are we down through verse 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, as we look into your pages this morning, would you grant grace and mercy to see your truth and apply it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. If you were to ask... If you were to be asked to develop a list of the most iconic characters of all time, who would you put on that list? Maybe you would find the superhero who first appeared in a comic book in 1938. You can finish the sentence, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Everybody knows Superman. Or the year after, Batman. Maybe you would list the, the novel character created by Ian Fleming, James Bond. Or, or perhaps in 1977, the, the character that struck fear into all hearts, Darth Vader. Or maybe if you're a little less dark, maybe you would go back to the 1902 character created by J.M. Barry. For the novel, The Little White Bird, the character of Peter Pan. Or perhaps if you're adventurous, you would put on that list a character Indiana Jones, created in 1981. These characters still live on, and for most of them, when you think of these characters, a smile comes to your face. Many of you have dressed up like these characters. Many of you have claimed to actually be these characters at some point, whether in a play or perhaps as a child. When we look at at John the Baptist, we have to understand that in this time period, John the Baptist was a real man, he was not some sort of fake superhero, but, but John the Baptist, in a sense, was a character. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan like I am, perhaps you would tie a line from John the Baptist to Radagast, the cousin of Gandalf, who lived with the animals and lived on a strange diet and was always kind of out of sorts per se. John the Baptist was a unique character of unique characters. From a young age, living in the wilderness with the wild animals, scrapping what he could find to eat, he wore a cloak of camel's hair tied around with a loose piece of leather he ate locusts which taste terrible so he dipped them in honey he was known as a character in order in fact in order to get to know John the Baptist and to hear the teachings of John the Baptist he would never come to town you had to go to him you had to go find this guy Preaching this message of repentance in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of nowhere. But God used him in an incredible way. Because it was through the ministry of John the Baptist that God used the message of repentance to prepare the nation of Israel to receive the Messiah. His message was a message of repentance, which means to turn. It means you're going one way and you need to go another way. It's not a message of penance, do good works and feel bad about things. It's a message of the biblical concept of repentance. Your mindset is this and it needs to be this. Therefore, turn in your mind and embrace the fact that the Messiah is going to be different than you thought. And so he offers a baptism of change a baptism out of something to to go down into the water one way and to come out another way. And so we see this real life, true character who the Apostle John calls to the witness stand. He calls him a witness right here in verse 19. This is the testimony. The Apostle John is calling this unique man to the witness stand, to give testimony about the Messiah, about the Son of God. As I've already said in, in verses 1 through 18, we've been examining the prologue to John's gospel as he has been laying the foundation for the rest of the book, introducing these doctrinal themes that you can't really understand the book without knowing All of these doctrinal themes will be expounded in later chapters. And in verse 19, the apostle begins the account of Christ's life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, are the historical account of Christ's life. They're known as the synoptics. John is not. John is different because John has a mission. He's got a purpose. He's got a theme. And so John is not just telling you these things to tell you what Christ did. He is explaining what happened in Christ's life to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. To prove to you that Jesus is worth your life. To prove to you that Jesus came to live a perfect life and die the perfect death for you. And so in order to prove his case, he begins by calling to the witness stand this unique character in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. John the Baptist needs no introduction to the Jews who are reading the gospel here Every Jew respected John as a prophet of God. They saw the hand of God on his life. They recognized that John was an Old Testament prophet in the line of the well-known prophets who, written, who wrote inspired scripture. And so when the text says this is the testimony of John, it really stands on its own. You need no introduction as those in our culture who are known on a first name or a last name basis. Their name is a household name, so you say it once and everybody knows who you're talking about. And so John was that way. John was a character. Everybody knew the wild man. Everybody knew John. John the baptizer. And this is his testimony. That he was born of a prophecy of an angel of the Lord through Zachariah and Elizabeth who was barren in Luke chapter 1. He was born into a Levitical household, meaning that John the Baptist was in the line of priests. Not a lot of people know that. And so he has the right, based on being part of the the Levitical line, to practice as a priest through his father, Zechariah. He's lived in isolation in the wilderness his entire life. And it is through this character that God chooses to break 400 years of prophetical silence. You see, since the closing of the Old Testament, it's been 400 years since a prophet has spoken with the power of the word of God. And God chooses this unique man. Have you ever thought yourself too unique to be used by God? too weird you know i'm not the typical person you may say god created me and threw the mold away i don't know anybody else like me i have unique desires i have you know maybe god created me in, in, in a unique way that some people will call weird i call it awesome you know or whatever but but can i really be used of god and friend the testimony of john the baptist is one that we can all resonate with that god chooses willing people not perfect people To be used by God in unique ways. And however God has created you, God has a plan for your life to use you for his kingdom. And God's plan for John was to break the 400 years of silence, the dark period. The intertestamental dark period. So God will speak once again. Knowing that, the text before us, verses 19 through verse 34, is going to break up for us this morning into three questions. <clears throat> Two of the questions are actually given to us in the text. The first is obvious. The second is obvious, both given by the, those who are in opposition to Christ. The first question is, who are you? The second question is, what do you think you are doing? And the third question is, is one that has been asked of his followers that is assumed in the text, and that is, who is the Messiah? And I believe that this text reveals to us the answers to all three of those questions. It's a simple outline for us this morning. So let's look at the first question that's given to us here in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, as the apostle calls uh, John the baptizer to the witness stand when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, here's our first question that our text answers for us this morning, and it's this, who are you? They're not asking his name. Do you mind if I ask your name? Perhaps uh, you're new to our church this morning and, and you met somebody new and they came up and they said, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? Who are you? That's not what's going on here. Everybody knew who this guy was. You could probably see him and maybe even smell him from a mile away, right? As he is gathering the crowds around him and, and announcing the word of the Lord. But they're coming to him to ask him specifically to identify his role in the redemptive plan of God. You see, God has been unfolding a redemptive plan since Genesis chapter 3. Really, Genesis chapter 1. God created everything perfectly. And then man sinned, choosing rather to to side with error than to side with truth. And, and God tells Adam and Eve, one day there's one who's going to come who will crush the serpent's head. And from that point on, there's a scarlet thread that runs from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. The scarlet thread of redemption and that thread has been traced by God's people to try to understand how different events fit into that plan. And so these people show up to John and they ask him, Who are you? What, what role do you play in this plan of redemption? Who are these people? Notice that John records them as the Jews. Now, John is a Jew. And he's not saying that to let you know their nationality. John actually uses this phrase, interestingly enough, to always tie the people who to tie this phrase to a group of people who were standing in opposition to Christ. So anytime that you see the Jews in general mentioned, it's mentioned as the group of people who rejected Christ as their Messiah. So he's saying these were the Jews sent by the Pharisees to examine the ministry of John. John's this Levitical priest gone rogue out in the wilderness. And they're looking at him saying, okay, we need to examine his ministry to see if it fits with what we know to be true of the Old Testament. Now, we don't know the motivation, meaning that it's not given to us. But we can assume later on it's told to us. That it's actually, in verse 24, that the Pharisees had gathered together to ask John this question. They're probably examining his doctrine, examining his ministry to see if John fits into their mold. And they're going to find out very quickly that he doesn't. So the question they asked, who are you? is broken up into three specific questions of identity. Number one, are you the Christ? Pretty straightforward question. And John answers it in a really interesting way. Look at John's answer in verse 20. Our English translations bring out for us that he answers this question differently than the rest. So when you look at verse 20, it says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You ever had somebody ask you the same question over and over and over and over again, and you get tired of saying no, so you just emphatically state it in the positive, you know? Um, uh, Or you know, maybe you're 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 on a vacation and your kids ask the dreaded question, which is outlawed in our household when we're traveling. What is that question? Are we there yet? And so in our house, if they ask how much longer, the answer is always five. Five what? I don't know, but five something. So the answer is five. Anytime. It could be five seconds, it could be five minutes, it could be five hours, it could be five intervals of ten minutes. Who knows? But, but the truth is, it's, it's some combination somewhere of five. And so if you ever ask me how much longer, the kids will say, right because that's the answer and when you get the dreaded question are we there yet you get tired of saying no and so you may look at them and you may say we are not there yet I don't know when we will be there Okay, that's what John is doing here he confessed he didn't deny it but he confessed I am not the Christ it's like he's aggravated with them it's like people have been coming to him over and over and over and over again are you sure you're not the Christ are you sure you're not the one we're looking for and he's sick and tired of it And so he looks at them and he confesses, he doesn't deny, but he confesses, I am not the Christ. So if you have any question whether or not John the Baptist is the Christ, he's not. Okay, And he answers it very emphatically here in verse 20. And in verse 21, it's interesting, they go on to the next. Are you Elijah? What then? If you're not the Christ, and who are you? Because it's obvious that God's hand is on you. It's obvious that, that you are ministering in a unique way. And so they ask, are you Elijah? And you say, what in the world would possess them to ask if he was Elijah? Like, I know, like, Elijah got carried up into heaven, but are they asking if he's bodily Elijah? No, that's not what they're asking. Take your Bibles, turn back to the last passage in the Old Testament. Because this was the last word from God before everything went dark and John the Baptist began to speak. 400 years between Malachi chapter 4 and John chapter 1. 400 years. And the last word of the Lord that the children of Israel had, the hope that carried them through all this time, is Malachi chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 5. And God says through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, there it is, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so, the Jews are asking him, are you Elijah? Are you the hope? Are you the hope that we've been waiting for? And interestingly enough, John answers, no. No. The third question they ask, we'll get to John's answers here in a second, but the third question they ask is, are you the prophet? Another interesting question. Are you the prophet? Not saying a prophet, but are you the prophet? prophet? And this question is a little more confusing because this actually stems stems from a first century misreading of the book of Deuteronomy, of a prophecy in the Old Testament. I want to read this for you. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says the following, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them of all that I've commanded him. And so a misreading of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15 Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, a misreading of this passage was that the first century Jews believed that there was actually going to be a special prophet raised up from the Lord, who was like God, who was like Moses, and they were looking for this one they only knew as the prophet. And it's a misreading of that text, we'll see in just a minute. But their question was threefold. Are you Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you this prophet we're looking for? And John's answer is, I am not the Christ. No, And no, so his first answer is emphatically, I am not the Christ. And that's why you see later in the book of Acts, those who only knew of the baptism of John and the first century church's responsibility that they took on themselves to explain the ministry of Jesus Christ. Because John is not the one they're looking for. He was a signpost. Secondly, he says, I'm not Elijah. And this is a little more complicated. It's a very interesting answer that he gives. Are you Elijah? And John says, no. But if you know your Bible well, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says, yes. So who's right? Jesus or John the Baptist? And I think obviously, under the, the recognition of the inerrancy of, of, of Jesus in his proclamations, we know Jesus was right, and so in discussions uh, this week, I don't know if this is the correct answer or not, but Pastor Ben said, under the inspiration and inerrant word of God, John the Baptist was wrong. Okay, And we know that because we have Jesus's recollect, or Jesus' pronouncement that John the Baptist was Elijah. Matthew chapter 17, the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come. He will restore all things, Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. They killed him. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Listen to Matthew Matthew 17, verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah has come. And so we do not have a contradiction in Scripture here. What we have is we have John not recognizing his own biblical role as the fulfilled prophecy of Elijah, of of Malachi chapter 4. John looks at that and he says, no, that can't be me. Not me. Have you seen me? I can't fulfill that role. No, there's no way I could be that person. And Jesus says, yes, he was. He's the prophecy. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. And it actually tells us, and we don't, we don't really have the time to go down this road, but friends, I want to warn you to be careful of the way that you treat prophecy. Because often we treat prophecy as if it is so clear and we know exactly what's going to happen. I'm talking about maybe futuristic prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. But in scripture, every time that we see prophecy fulfilled, it's always a shock to those who are involved in that prophetic announcement. In other words, you have Mary who who is who is an incredibly godly woman who through her magnifica, we see that she knows the scripture inside and out. And she knows the law of God. And she knows the prophecy. She's been trained well as a, as a Jewish young lady. And then when the angel says, you are going to bring forth Messiah, she says, how can that be? Because I don't have a husband i know i not I know not a man right and he says well prophecy it's almost like at that moment they go oh that's what that means and friends often with prophecy we need to be careful to recognize that we we may have an idea of, of what the future will hold we do jesus wins okay and God knows every single detail. But I have a feeling that when we get to those points, we're going to go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And so we need to hold the views of the future as we hold them. And that is with a loose hand recognizing the the unalterable truth that God has the future planned and he's revealed it to us in his word and God wins the the war has already been won even though the battles are raging but yet the details of how that will be accomplished we need to be willing to be different on and to recognize that we hold those views With an open hand. And so John says, I'm not Elijah. There's no way that could be me. And Jesus says, Actually, he is. He's the one prophesied in Malachi chapter 4. John is not the prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we say, Well, who is that prophet? It's interesting that we have two sermons in the New Testament that actually reveal that answer to us and that the Bible doesn't leave these questions unopened. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 22, Stephen stands up and he says, listen, you're looking for the prophet who will come. Guess what? You missed it. It was Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, sorry, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22 and Stephen preaches in Acts chapter 7 and verse 37 and both of them identify that prophet as Jesus recognizing that the one who would come would be Jesus himself. So his answers, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, but he does answer them because they get a little bit flabbergasted at him. Look at verse 22. Who are you? It's obvious that God's hand is on you. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John says... I'm the voice. That's who I am. I'm a voice. I'm one standing in the wilderness, and I'm crying out the gospel. His selfless answer, I'm nothing but the voice, crying out in the wilderness that people need to get their hearts ready for the coming of Messiah. And then he ties himself to Isaiah chapter 40, the scripture reading that we went through at the beginning of the service. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Get ready. Because Messiah is coming. You need to cleanse yourself. Because you've been waiting in the filth of legalism for so long by following the Pharisees. You need to be washed to be ready. This baptism was an interesting baptism that John offered. Because it was a baptism that... um, Gentiles would need to go through in order to be washed of their their, uh, otherness, in order to be welcomed into the the Judaism of the day. And it's the same baptism that John is, is offering, but he's offering it to Jews and Gentiles together, saying, you all need to be washed. You need to lay aside a visual representation of laying aside the past in order to be ready. It's a visual representation of repentance a turning to the Messiah. You know, John's mindset is the same mindset that every servant of God should have. At the end of the day, we lay aside our titles. We recognize that each one of our responsibilities is the same, to be a voice for God. That's our responsibility. And may God give us the grace To identify ourselves as John identified himself. The first question, who are you? Preparing people's hearts to receive the truth. The second question, what are you doing? What are you doing? Verse 25. Now they asked him, if you're just a voice, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not the prophet then why are you baptizing? You see, their question of what are you doing, it was obvious the action that he was doing. He was was accomplishing baptism. Their question is tailored specifically to the question of what authority do you have to do this, right? Like, whose authority are you operating under? Because this is unlike anything we've ever seen. We know that you're of the tribe of Levi. We know... That, that, that you're in the priestly line, but you're not doing this in the temple. You're doing this in the wilderness as people are being baptized for repentance. So they're trying to nail down what authority is operating under, and he answers it in verse 26. I baptize with water. It's a water baptism. But among you stands one you do not know. You know me, but a one among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie. He he ties his authority line specifically to the Messiah. I'm doing this under the authority of God Himself, because God has commissioned this ministry for me. I think it's interesting that John refers to Jesus, look there at verse 26, as the one you do not know. That's a very interesting phrase to refer to Jesus that way. I believe what John is doing is John is, con- is, is giving a contrast between his gregarious, unique nature, kind of this character, uh, this real-life prophet that everyone would look at, and if he ever were to go into town and walk down the street, everybody would point and say, we know who that guy is. He's contrasting his ministry with the ministry of Jesus. He's saying, listen, Jesus walks the street every day. In fact, you've probably walked down the road by the Messiah in Jerusalem and not even known it. If you lived in Nazareth for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, you would have seen Jesus over and over and over again. And you would have never known That he was Messiah. His glory was revealed. We've talked about this a lot. But his divine nature. Remember we've used the word. uh, The phrase from Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We use the phrase veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. And so the divinity that that Jesus possessed. Was veiled by his humanity. And he says there's one you don't know. And it's going to shock you. Who it is. Because he looks just like you. He acts just like you. He's a true human in every aspect. John was shockingly different than everyone else. Jesus was shockingly ordinary. The same as everyone else. He was raised in a day laborer's home. He's a normal guy. He's a blue-collar worker. He was a carpenter. There were tables in people's homes that the Son of God had built for them. I don't know if they had gutters at that time, but if they did, there were gutters that had been repaired by Jesus. There were chairs and stools, probably doors to people's houses that Jesus had built. And at the end of doing an excellent job for the glory of his Father, they give him a tip and say, thanks, buddy, and send him on his way. Because, friends, God doesn't use perfect people. God's not looking for a fourth member of the Trinity. He's looking for willing servants. And he modeled that with his son. He didn't send him as a king in a palace. He sent him as the servant king, a carpenter, fully in obedience to God's commands. Where was John doing this? You can see in verse 28 he's doing this at Bethany across the Jordan. It's where John was baptized. There are two Bethany's mentioned in scripture. The Bethany that you probably are familiar with is the one where Mary and Martha lived. The one where uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. The one where Mary anointed the feet of Jesus Is the general location in the area of Bethany where Jesus ascended back into heaven. But when we read carefully, we see that John the Apostle gives us a note in verse 28. If you look carefully, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. He's saying this was a different one, this was a special Bethany. You know, there are more than 30 cities in America named Greenville. There are a lot of you who had just talked to, uh, to the Carols, they have two boys who live down in Greenville, South Carolina. And so when they say, we'll be in Greenville this week, we know what Greenville they're going to, but perhaps they're going to be, I don't know, in Greenville, Idaho. I don't even know if there is a Greenville, Idaho. But if there was, they'll be like, hey, we're going to Greenville. Not that Greenville, we're going to the Greenville out west. And that's what John the Apostle is doing here. He's saying, John Baptist is baptizing in Bethany, but it's it's not that Bethany. It's the Bethany across the Jordan, up in the mountains, in the middle of nowhere. Up in these treacherous hills in the middle of the wilderness in the desert. Which is kind of like Idaho. So it's, you know, it's like in the middle, middle of nowhere. Very specifically. Let's look at the third question. The third question. The first question, who are you? The second question, what are you doing? The third question, who is the Messiah? Messiah. You'll see a shift in audience here in verses 28 to 29. The audience, through verse 28, John is speaking to those who are opposing Christ. He's speaking to those who were sent by the Pharisees, the Jews. And then in verse 29, the audience shifts, and John is speaking to his followers. John is speaking to his disciples. We're going to take two weeks to look at verse 29. Through 34, I'm going to kind of give you the big picture of verses 29 through 34 this morning as we finish up our time. And then next week we'll look specifically at John's phrase. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A foundational concept to not just who Jesus is but what Jesus has done And so as we look at the overview of 29 to 34, as we finish this morning, I'd like to show you four identifiers that John gives when he answers the question, who is the Messiah? First of all, John says in verse 29, he's the Lamb of God. After all the questioning, the moment that John has been waiting for his whole life arrives, Jesus walks towards John, and John looks at him, maybe on the banks of a river through which he is baptizing, and he looks at Jesus, whom he's already baptized. We'll talk about that next week. And he says, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Messiah. It's interesting. You could expect him to say, the King of the Jews, or the Lord of Lords, or the King of Kings, but he doesn't. He says, the Lamb, the Lamb, the offering, the offering given from God. Secondly, John the Baptist identifies him not only as the Lamb, but as the eternal God. We saw this in John's prologue. This is he of whom I said. Verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. John once again draws our attention to the fact that Jesus existed before him in eternity past, And even though uh, Jesus was six months younger than John the Baptist, by referencing that Jesus was before him, he ties Jesus as being the eternal God, God the Son. In verse 31, he says, I did not know the person of Messiah, but God revealed him to me. And how did he do that? Through the direct revelation. Look at verse 32 as we see the third aspect of the identification of the Messiah, and that Jesus is the true man. He's the true man. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, that's the Father, God, he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, direct revelation from God, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. So we have two aspects of this identification that we have to address. One is the baptism of Jesus. The second is this unique phrase, baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at both of those briefly. We're going to ask the question, Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because John the Baptist references the baptism here. He doesn't, John the Apostle doesn't go into great detail here as Matthew does because his purpose isn't to record what happened. Remember, he's recording for a purpose. And so John the Baptist brings up this concept, this event in the life of Jesus where John the Baptist baptizes the Son of God. And so we have to ask the question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? And I'm so glad you asked that question, because the answer is given to us in Matthew chapter 3. I'll read the passage for you, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. Listen carefully to Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And we need to explain what that phrase means, but there's your reason. Why did Jesus need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness? And then John consented. And then we have the account when Jesus came up out of the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The purpose of the baptism of Jesus reveals to us two things. It's identifying, first of all, that he is a true human. That there is no part of Jesus that is not human in every way. And it's also... To fulfill the righteous act that every human needs of repentance in order to be saved. In order to come to Christ. So the purpose of John's baptism was the opportunity for the Jewish people to confess their sins and to prepare themselves to receive the Messiah. They were turning their back on trusting their lineage. They were turning their back on trusting their actions because actions never got anybody to heaven. They're turning their back on trying to keep the law of God because the Bible is not given to us to show us how to live. If that's the case, we're all in big trouble because none of us can live up to the standard of the Bible. The Bible was given to us to show us that we can't live up to how we're supposed to live. And we need Jesus. We need the mercy of God. And so this baptism was the turning of the back on all of those Those pharisaical ideas and looking to the mercy and grace of God. An act that everyone must do when they embrace Christ. You can't embrace Jesus plus other things. In order to embrace Christ, you have to turn your back on other things. It's not some sort of separate act. That earns you salvation. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is the the other side of the coin of faith. In order to embrace who Jesus is, you have to come in repentance because that's the nature of faith. It's Christ alone. And so John is baptizing these Jews saying, you need this, you need this, you need this. And Jesus is being baptized so that he can take your place. He has to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus didn't need the baptism of repentance, but we do. And as a true man, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And this is an aspect of the role of Christ that a lot of people don't understand. And hopefully I can help you understand this this morning. That it wasn't just the death of Jesus that made salvation possible. It was the life of Jesus as well. In other words, Jesus didn't just do nothing wrong. He did everything right. It's called, if you want a term, a theological term that you may find in your reading, it's called Jesus's active obedience. It means that he fulfilled every aspect of the law for you. Because you need righteousness to get to heaven. You have to be perfect and you can't be. So you need Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so Jesus wasn't baptized for himself. He was baptized for you so he could be the righteousness that you could never be. And so when you receive Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but you are, the, the word is imputed, you are given all of Christ's righteousness. So that when God sees you, he sees perfection, even though you aren't perfect. You are wrapped in a white robe of righteousness. And without it, none can see the grace of God without Jesus' righteousness on your account. You can't live with God for all of eternity in paradise. Friends, if you try to live according to your own righteousness, you will find that your righteousness falls short. And you will spend eternity separated from God in a terrible place called hell that God created for Satan and his demons. But it also is applicable for all of those who die in their sins without the righteousness of Christ. And so we have this beautiful picture of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 being found in him not having a righteousness of my own but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so in the baptism of Christ, you have a beautiful picture of the active obedience, the active obedience of Jesus. The Spirit of God descends on Christ. It did not look like a bird. It was not a bird. This wording is used to, to say that, that the Spirit of God descended from heaven as birds fly in there. Remember, they didn't have planes and everything like that. The only thing that flew in the air were birds. Doves were beautiful birds. And so the Spirit of God comes and descends on Jesus through the heavens, through the air. This beautiful presence of God, what did it look like? I don't know, but it didn't look like a bird. Okay, so all those images that you have in your mind of this bird tweeting out of the sky, kind of appearing out of nowhere and resting on the head or shoulders of Christ, get that out of your mind. It's the Spirit of God descending on Jesus, and John in that moment looks at him and goes, It's him! This is the one confirmed by the Father. Through whom all will find salvation. Quickly, what in the world is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see here at the end of verse 33? It's something that's gravely misunderstood by many people. Pentecostalism would misrepresent this doctrine by believing that sometime later, following a conversion of a person, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just like the first century belie- uh, believers, the first century Jews misread Deuteronomy chapter 18, so that movement misreads the book of Acts. They would believe that the Holy Spirit will somehow later evidence this baptism with supernatural abilities, like ecstatic utterances and such. But as Protestants, we embrace the historical Christian teaching from all the way from the first century and seeing the pattern of the the first century church, but also the understandings from Scripture and the clear teachings of the book of the New Testament that the baptism of the Spirit means to be immersed in the Spirit, immersed in Christ. That every person who places their faith and trust in Christ is immersed into Christ. That they're immersed into the Spirit. That not only is God in you, but you are in God. It's this, you'll often see it referenced as union with Christ. Union with God. Union with the Spirit. And it's this union that brings not only the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, but it also brings the fellowship with other believers. And so we are baptized, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, into each other, into the body of Christ. It's being found in Christ. It has nothing to do with ecstatic blessings that descend on a person after salvation, but it's the presence of God in the believer and the believer in the presence of God. And certainly there are times in which a person needs to walk in the Spirit, to be in fellowship with the Spirit, and there may even be times through which the Holy Spirit chooses to use somebody in a unique way in a certain time, or there is perhaps certain times in which the Holy Spirit moves in a unique way. We would call that revival, a proper understanding of revival, is God of his own volition, through the power of the prayers of his people, choosing to move in a unique way, and may we pray for that today. But the baptism of the Spirit here is is referring to the union with God that we experience as believers given to us at the moment of salvation, which began in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The fourth identification is one that we've been looking at. Through the entire prologue, and that is how he ends in verse thirty-four. And if you have any questions, it's like it's like John the Baptist is on the witness stand, and uh, and they end their questioning. He's like, just in case anybody missed it, verse thirty-four, we've seen and bore witness. This is the Son of God. Like if you just want to wrap it up, look at look at Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's worth your worship. He's worth your life. He's the only one who can bring lasting satisfaction on this earth, who can bring eternal life for all in heaven for all of eternity. And friend, if you're here and you're empty in your soul, if you pillow your head at night and you know you're missing something, it's Jesus you're looking for. Amen. He is the Son of God. He's the answer that you're looking for. The only answer, and without him, You will be lost, but with him you can be found. And so John the Baptist on the witness stand is our first witness that's called. He wraps it up. He's the son of God. Friend, to miss Jesus is to miss heaven. There is no heaven without Jesus. There is no hope without Jesus. In conclusion, if you're looking for, you know, when we look at Scripture, we don't ever want to look at characters in Scripture and say, be like that person in every respect. You know, don't if if you all show up next Sunday not having washed, having lived in the wilderness, living on a diet of locusts and honey, wrapped in camel hair, a little bit out of your mind. You know, um, then 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 you've missed the whole purpose of of where to emulate John's character here. But I do think there is a, a a portion of the character of John the Baptist that we all need to emulate. Okay, we don't want to go down the road. Don't be like Samson. You know, be like Samson's God. But there are aspects of these men that we see the character of God displayed. And I'd like to draw our attention to just one. And as we wrap up John the Baptist and and the concept of John the Baptist, I think we need to be drawn to his humility. His humility. As you go through John's testimony over and over and over again, he keeps saying, it's not about me. If, if, if you come to see me, you've missed it. I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. He who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy being the lowest servant in his house. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. I came baptizing with water to reveal him. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the culminating statement from John, I'm just a voice. It's not about me. It's all about God. It's about Jesus. I'm a signpost. That's all I am. And friends, we can emulate that same humility, can't we? I should say, shouldn't we? That if we have a role to play in God's mission here on this earth, and we do. May it be to be the voice. And friends, can I also tell you that one of the goals that we have in our church membership is to train you to be good church members, not only here, but if God ever moves you somewhere else to be good church members in a different location. And, and, and listen carefully. If you are ever looking for a church Look for a church in which the leadership of that church recognizes that they are just the voice. That it's not about them. There are churches all over this United States in which the church is centered around personalities of people. And may that never be the case at community. I know that's the prayer of our pastors here. I know that's the prayer of our leadership here. May that always be true of our leadership here at community. And if God ever takes you to another ministry, may you look for a ministry in which the leadership of that ministry says it's not about us. It's about Jesus. We are simply the voice to point the way or the signpost. And may God grant us that humility in our individual lives and in our corporate body as a church. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would grant us that, that we would see this beautiful picture of God the Son on display, the true man, the true God. And may you ingrain in our hearts the truth of Psalm 115.1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your mercy and for the sake of your truth. May we be voices crying in the wilderness, pointing to Jesus, pointing people to the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, before we enter back into the busyness of this day, would you take just one beat, would you take one moment, and would you lean into what the Holy Spirit is pressing into your heart at this moment? Friend, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you know you're not a Christian, and you feel the drawing hand of God on your life. Would you call out to Jesus and lay hold of him in the quietness of this moment. You need nothing but Christ. You don't need to fix yourself. He'll do it for you. You don't need to feel bad about your sin, friend. That comes later. What you need to do is you need to run to Jesus and Jesus alone, laying your heart and your life down at the foot of the cross. Would you do that this morning? And Christian, Would you pray that God would make you a voice? However God is stirring you in these quiet moments of reflection and response, would you do business as the Holy Spirit works in your heart? Thank you for what you've done in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.